electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Contessa Brewer, in for Brian Sullivan tonight. Elon's damage control. The Tesla CEO visits Israel amid a storm of controversy. Will it be enough to calm investors ahead of this week's first Cybertruck delivery? What's behind a sudden surge in respiratory illnesses in China? We have a special report. A toxic video mix. If you thought Instagram content was questionable before, wait to hear what a new report just uncovered involving children. A 2024 election twist where billionaire Ken Langone may soon deploy a boatload of cash. And he's the technician who called the market rally on this show. And now Piper Sandler's Craig Johnson is back with another big call on the stocks that are still a buy. Plus, there's bad, and then there's Carolina Panthers bad. We'll show you some astounding numbers around hedge fund titan David Tepper and his messy ownership of the NFL team. And make it Mondays with beef patty, shredded oxtail, and mac and cheese. We'll meet the entrepreneur minting money with one of New York's hottest food spots. That and much more across the hour. Last call is up right now. Good evening, good afternoon out west. I'm Contessa Brewer. First up, it's Cyber Monday, and millions of Americans have been cashing in on deals both online today and in person over the Black Friday weekend. Now, early reports that spending today alone has already surpassed $8 billion and could reach more than $12 billion for the day. And investors are taking note. Major retail stocks have soared, then scored decent gains since just Thanksgiving, adding to overall market optimism as the holiday season gets underway. And it was a solid spending weekend. Consumers spent more than $9.8 billion on Black Friday, according to Adobe Analytics. And in terms of credit card spending, MasterCard notes a 2.5% increase over last year. But one particular corner of the industry looks to be fueling it, and that's buy now, pay later. Services like Affirm, Klarna, and others give buyers the opportunity to pay for purchases over time, splitting up the cost of a product in monthly installments for little or no interest. Affirm stock ended today, Cyber Monday, up over 10%, fueled by a report that more than $760 million were spent Friday on purchases bought through buy now and pay later options. $760 million. That's a 20% increase compared to last year. On Black Friday, Affirm CEO joined Squawk Box, and here's what he said about that increase in usage of Affirm and what it means for the overall economy. If we see uptick in usage, and we see for that consumer, for that segment of consumers, uptick of usage of other credit products, we see that as a warning sign. However, when we see usage of Affirm as a replacement for other products, you know, we, we exist as a smarter, better, more honest alternative to credit cards, then we love it. So what do these 
trends mean for the true health of the U.S. consumer? Joining me now, Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab & Co., Lizanne Saunders. Lizanne, good to see you. Are you, you concerned too. that this use, this, this embrace of buy now, pay later indicates we may be in for a bit of a credit crunch with consumers? I'm not sure quite yet. I, I think as the reporting uh, just prior to this suggested, when you look at a, a fairly limited increase that MasterCard talked about year over year of what I think was two or 3% versus the 20% for buy now, pay later, I think it's sort of swapping of the, the vehicle and, and it's there, there's intelligence behind it given sky high interest rates on credit cards, not to mention the fees associated with it. So I think there there may be a switch. Now, looking more broadly, when you look at massive increase in, in credit card usage, when you look at delinquencies that are starting to rise, particularly for younger borrowers, Relative to compensation, many of the ratios still look pretty decent, but if wage growth starts to come down, which is certainly something the Fed would like to see, then I think those ratios start to look a little bit worse. The last thing I'd say about buy now, pay later is the, the dollar amount is up 20%, but the the cart size has actually uh, shrunk a bit. So I think you have to peel the onion back a little bit to get the true story. Well, you had the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York saying that Americans now owe 1.08 trillion on their credit cards and delinquencies are then leading banks to lift their loan loss reserves. Are you seeing other red flags for consumers and the health of well, the American got, consumer? Yeah, as I mentioned, you've got delinquencies uh, rising on credit cards, particularly for younger borrows in that sort of late teens to, to mid thirties kind of range, but it's not just on the credit card side of things. You're seeing auto delinquencies move up, particularly in the lower quality down in the subprime area, but even in the primary, you're seeing a bit of a lift there. We, we know the pressure's bearing down on the consumer, particularly given the renewed uh, student loan payments and compensation that although is still fairly healthy, what we've seen in the last several months is that the spending has exceeded incomes. I think it's three or four months in a row. So you are starting to see sort of cracks in the veneer of the resilient consumer. And I think looking into 2024, I think the labor market holds the key to whether that deteriorates further from here. Lizanne, thank you so much. We appreciate that. We have been watching a major market rally. The major indices on pace to have their best month this year. Something few predicted when stocks were in the midst of an October correction. Except if you were watching last call. Piper Sandler's Craig Johnson predicted right here last month that stocks would rally. It's about 14% upside. We're already seeing divergences in terms of interest rates. We're already seeing this market fairly oversold on some overbought, oversold oscillators. The breadth of the market has already deteriorated. We've thrown a lot at this market. Craig was on the money, and since then, the S&P 500 has popped 8%. It's now about a percent away from its 2023 high. And you've got more analysts on the street joining the bandwagon now. Deutsche Bank today predicted the S&P could gain more than 11 percent and hit a record high next year. Look who's here in person. The man, the myth, the legend, Craig Johnson, chief market technician at Piper Sandler, at least for that last call. 
You see what I did there? I did. Thank okay. you very much. So let's talk a little bit about Deutsche Bank's prediction. You didn't tell me what you thought about 2024, but but one, is Deutsche Bank on target? Do you think that that's a reasonable expectation for 2024? We see upside for next year. Now, Contessa, we haven't put out our 2024 outlook yet. That is coming next week. So you'll have to have us back next week for the 2024 oh, call. Oh, that's not a tease. And, and from our perspective, we do see upside. And our bottoms-up models do suggest there's upside. But I don't think it's going to be quite as bullish as what a lot of people are thinking at this point in time. There's upside but maybe not quite as much. Okay, what drives the upside then? We've seen so much of this rally based on big tech. Are there other sectors that could push the markets higher? So if we break apart what we think is going to happen next year, it's really got to come down to two things. Number one, the Fed is probably done next year. Number two, the yield curve probably becomes uninverted or a normal sloping yield curve. Those are two things that we're thinking about for next year. And so from our perspective, this market has to broaden out. What we had talked about last time we were on, on last call, was a broadening out of the market, a big rally off the lows. That is starting to happen. And in fact, last Friday, Katessa, we got buy signals on our intermediate term indicators and also on our new highs, lows indicators just last week. And from our perspective, this suggests to us that the intermediate term trend is still up. There's still more to go. This market can get to 48.25 by year end from our perspective. What? Wow. Okay, so you think in a month we could get that much higher? Absolutely. When we go back and we look throughout history, what we found throughout history is there's been 13 periods where we've seen in the last 28 trading days of the year, we've seen these very significant rallies come into play. I can tell you there's going to be a lot of year-end window dressing going on with portfolio managers because they've been on the wrong side of this trade all year long, and they're going to have to play catch-up. And that's what I think is going to have to happen. What causes you concern at this point? If, if those are your ra- very bullish predictions over not just next year, and you've got all year to see that come true, but in this last month of trading for 2023, what could stand in the way? Well, I guess what could stand in the way is more geopolitical conflict. I mean, it could certainly be a concern but at this so, point in time. But so far in this rally, we've seen that largely blown off. Correct. And all these things that should have been problems are sort of being ignored. The Fed is now looking like they're done and everybody had priced in another rate hike and it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So a lot of these concerns and more of this soft landing scenario contestant seems to be playing out. So at this point in time, it's got to be something new geopolitical to unfold. I don't see it happening at this point in time. And, and I know that you're really optimistic about small and mid cap stocks. Why? Absolutely, because we're starting to see the market broadening out. We're starting to see things beyond the Magnificent Seven starting to begin to participate. And we're starting to see financials participate. And as that happens, those are going to be the biggest drivers for the Russell 2000. Financials, industrials, and we need to see some healthcare pickup. And with the conference we got coming up this week in New York, Contessa, I'm hoping we start to see a pickup in the healthcare stocks. Craig Johnson, I really appreciate that you made the effort to come into studio. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Well, here's what happened to your money today. The Dow, the S&P, the Nasdaq all closed slightly in the red. Just slightly. On to studs and duds. The biggest winner of the day was Domino's Pizza. Always a winner when they ring the doorbell. But here you have TD Cowan raising its price target on Domino's to $4.30 a share. Biggest loser, lithium provider Albemarle. It's been a rough stock for investors lately. Shares hit a 52-week low earlier this month down 6.3%. Up next, a lot of questions surrounding a sudden bizarre spike in respiratory illnesses in China. We get answers. Plus, Elon Musk in Israel. 
Can he defuse the onslaught of criticism and controversy ahead of Tesla's first Cybertruck deliveries this week? We'll get reaction from a major investor ahead. Stay with us. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. time for tomorrow's news tonight. Stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. And first up, Chinese fashion retailer Xi'an just confidentially filed to go public in the U.S. The company was last valued at $66 billion and has tapped Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley to be the lead underwriters on the offering, according to sources. Now, the company has faced some scrutiny over its labor practices and its ties to Beijing. Also tonight, grabbing attention, a new mystery illness in China causing concern. The World Health Organization says a new respiratory virus in China is sending a number of children into hospitals with pneumonia-like symptoms. But the Chinese government says the increase in illnesses are not a result of any unknown pathogens. CNBC's Eunice Yoon joins us now. With more. Eunice, what are you learning? Well, we're seeing a surge of respiratory illnesses in China and it appears mainly to be infecting children. Uh, videos have surfaced online of pediatric wards under strain in various cities, and that has sparked concerns that this could be a new pathogen. Now, the Chinese health authorities have denied that this is the case. Uh, rather, the government says that it's a basket of known viruses and bacterial infections, including one nicknamed walking pneumonia because it rarely requires hospitalization. The WHO is making similar statements, most recently saying that the respiratory illnesses that China is currently suffering is not as high as before the COVID-19 pandemic. This is not an indication of a novel pathogen, they say. Instead, this is what most countries have dealt with a year or two ago. Now, there are no signs so far that Beijing is taking drastic action lockdowns, for example. But officials are warning that the situation could get much worse over the next few months. And the underlying issue with that is that the experience that COVID has had among the public has undermined the trust around these national health issues. So what does that mean for China? I mean, for the Chinese government? Yeah. So what if the public doesn't trust them? Well, if China wants to be able to become a superpower and uh, build trust overseas. Uh, That is also a major issue for them because it's not a public trust issue only in China, but also 
in other countries. And we see that around the COVID pandemic, especially the WHO itself has been much more vocal about how they believe that Beijing hasn't been cooperative on the investigation of the origins of the coronavirus. So that just makes it much more hard, much more difficult for Beijing. Is there any indication that they are seeing undermined trust outside of China, the international community? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't only uh, limit, it's not only limited to the coronavirus, but that's definitely one area where people still are wondering. I mean, even now we're having this discussion because we don't necessarily know what this mystery virus is. I mean, a lot of, not only with the coronavirus, but when that first emerged, there was a lot of denial about the the uh, danger around that virus in the past with SARS. We saw something similar. And then it comes true also for the way that the Chinese currently are communicating, I think, on a lot of business issues as well, whether or not they're open to foreign investors or are they actually cracking down on foreign investors or private enterprise. Eunice, it's so good to have you here with us. Thank you so much. Nice to see you. Great to be here. Coming up, Elon Musk's wartime visit to Israel. Will it calm the outrage surrounding him before Tesla's first cyber truck deliveries this week? An influential investor weighs in. Plus, what's leaving electric vehicles in the dust ahead? Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Car buyers are choosing hybrid cars at higher rates than fully electric vehicles, according to new data. CNBC auto reporter Phil LeBeau joins me now to break it down. So why are they so popular, Phil, hybrids? couple of reasons, Contessa. Price as well as some concerns that when it comes to EV charging, if you're going on a long trip, eh, that, char that charging anxiety is there. Here's the latest data in terms of year-to-date sales, and hybrids are outselling EVs. Just a couple of years ago, it was a case where EVs had passed up hybrids. Not the story anymore. Yes, we are still dominated by internal combustion engine vehicles, but little by little, that dominance is starting to be uh, eaten away at. In terms of hybrid sales, they have more than doubled since 2020. So a lot of that is because of things like the Toyota RAV4, or you look at the F-Series, the F-150 hybrid. That's a case where Ford is realizing the demand and the popularity there. You put those together, and according to global data, you've got hybrids more than doubling in sales since 2020. But a big factor is pricing. Take a look at the difference between the average transaction price. Now, that's the price paid at a dealership. There's this idea that is floating out there where EVs are less expensive than internal combustion engine vehicles. Oh, no, they're about $5,000 more. And this is according to J.D. Power. So these are real stats from J.D. Power. Hybrids, 10 grand less than the average EV. And because of that, they are doing better than EVs. Now, keep in mind, when you look at EVs, Tesla has shown that if you bring that price down under $50,000, at least the base price, not everybody buys at a base price. A lot of people do not buy at the base price because they add on to it. But the Model 3 and the Model Y, 
they have dominated U.S. EV sales. Frankly, they're among the best-selling vehicles overall, and that shows the value of bringing down that price point. Now, for Tesla, it's all about the Cybertruck this week. First deliveries will begin on Thursday night. Do not expect the Cybertruck to start under $50,000, Contessa. We will get the pricing and the specifications regarding the first Cybertrucks being delivered Thursday night. They're only delivering 10. We're not going to see a huge ramp up in production right away. Tesla is going to be very cautious and gradual in terms of ramping up production. So 10 is unlikely to be clogging the freeway with Cybertrucks for me to actually go no. and gawk at. Although no. I've seen lines of people getting ready to go and gawk at things. And what? How long do you think, if you if you were to look at the trajectory of hybrids versus EVs, how long will hybrids keep outpacing sales of EVs? I'd say two or three years. Uh, it depends on how quickly the price of the EV can come down, and that depends on sourcing for batteries and materials here in North America and the EV battery plants. That's really the key here, Contessa. Once those are up and standing here in the U.S., you'll start to see the price of batteries come down and then the price of EVs come down. And that's going to take at least a couple of years, two or three years. Mm. So hybrids are going to stay hot for a while. Phil LeBeau, thank you. Tesla's you CEO bet. is making what many consider to be a damage control journey. Elon Musk visited Israel and toured the site of a Hamas assault alongside Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Musk later had a sit down with Israeli President Isaac Herzog. According to written dialogue from the president's office, Herzog addressed global anti-Semitism, prompting Musk to declare, and these are his words, they have to do whatever is necessary to stop the hate. Musk's journey comes amid backlash, of course, against him that prompted multiple companies to pull advertising from his social media platform X, where Musk had endorsed an anti-Semitic post. Well, after arriving in Israel, Musk posted on X that actions speak louder than words. Is all this enough to assuage investor concerns? One of those investors is here with us tonight. Joining us is Gerber Kawasaki, CEO and President Ross Gerber. And I know you've been an outspoken um, investor about Musk's behavior on the social media platform generally. Do you buy into this trip to the Middle East that, that he's talking about stopping hate? Is it enough to, for you to lay your concerns aside, Ross? I mean, it's not about allaying my concerns per se. I think this was a great step in the right direction for fixing, you know, really hurtful comments that he made by actually taking an action that I think many people in the Jewish community are very appreciative of. So he brought attention to a very important issue in the world. And I think he took a very positive step in the right direction to educating himself about, you know, the challenges that Jews face with uh, hate and anti-Semitism across the world, especially during this very, very trying time for Jews. So I appreciate, I really do, that he went to Israel and he made such a big effort, you know, to make amends for his, you know, really, a hurtful comment, you know. So that said, you know, does this sell more Teslas? And I don't know if it does, but but I but I do appreciate it. And and I think that you know Tesla is Tesla and Elon's Elon, and I would love to see more focus on Tesla. Do you think that the efforts that he's made? I mean, he has said previously he doesn't really care what people think, but this trip <laughs> seems to indicate he does care. Uh, do you think that it's enough to 
to win back advertisers to his platform? Is it enough to the, calm the concerns from other investors? Well, there's no question there's a lot of issues with acts and, and hate speech, and they're working really hard to try to deal with it, which I think is a really, really tough issue in general, and nobody's really been successful at there yet. And and I don't think he has yet either. I, I think if I'm an advertiser, I have to ask myself, is this the best platform for my ads? That's just irrelevant of hate speech and whatever else. And then number two, being associated with the brand, is this good for my brand? And, and I still think that Elon has a lot of work to do to convince advertisers to come back for the platform, which is maybe a different quest than you know, maybe getting some back some goodwill that he's lost, which I think he has. You said that you wanted him to spend more time talking about Tesla and, and, and cyber trucks. We're here we are. We're days away from the first deliveries of cyber trucks. Uh, what are you expecting here from Tesla? And is this is this sort of a rising tide that will lift all Tesla boats in terms of sales? Do you like how I just mixed my metaphors there? I, I do. I do. Um, no, you know, I think that Tesla's boat does kind of rise and fall based off new products. And, and the Cybertruck is an incredibly impactful product. And I've been lucky enough to see it and touch it and sort of almost get in it completely um, before the security guard stopped me. And, and I want, this, <laughs> you know, I want this vehicle very badly. And, and I think that people across the country, as they, you know, come in contact with the Cybertruck, are basically seeing the future of automobiles. And so I think it, it has a lot of impact for Tesla's overall brand. And I think it'll be positive for them, but I don't know if somebody's gonna go out and run by Model Y because they saw a Cybertruck on the road. And we'll, that's yet to be seen, but I do think it's some of the best advertising Tesla has is getting Cybertrucks on the road. That said, I still think they need to advertise on major media networks so people know about the value proposition of the Model Y as per the earlier segment where people are buying hybrids instead of Model Ys, which make no sense to now, I get that with other EVs, but not with the Model Y, which is priced incredibly aggressively and with tax benefits is actually cheaper than a hybrid. So, you know, I think Tesla needs to get its messaging out to the public and they'll have no problem selling cars. But I think there's a major education gap between what people know about electric cars and what's reality. And that's the part that I still think Tesla needs to address. Although that, you know, that charging anxiety that Phil was talking about, I mm -hmm. encountered that myself this year 100%. when I showed up and my rental car wasn't available and there were no rental cars. And there I was with an electric vehicle getting ready to do a road trip through the Great Mountain West. And that was not going to fly with with me. So that that is a hurdle still to overcome. It's that. a real hurdle for for especially for non-Teslas, because every non-Tesla EV owner I talk to Charging is the issue. And I've tweeted about it many times. The other charging companies suck compared to Tesla supercharging, which is always a great experience. And I think, you know, I'm looking at a Rivian right now, and that's like the one thing I'm concerned about is I can't use the supercharger network. But once that opens up to the other EV companies, that's going to be a huge boon for all the other EV companies to be in the Tesla supercharging network for sure, because then that anxiety goes away. Hey, Ross, I would pay good money, and I'll bet you other people would too, for video of you attempting to get all the way into a cyber truck and then getting stopped by security. So if you have that, I'm just going to encourage you to post it on X where... I, I don't have actual video of me getting kicked out of the cyber truck, but I've been you know, kicked out of lots of places because I try to learn as much as possible. Or cut the line, whatever. I'll take it yeah. as it comes. Ross, I don't thank... wait in lines. So I try to avoid <laughs> My point, exactly. Ross, thank yeah. you so much. Appreciate it.
Thank you. Still ahead, an eye-opening report on Instagram and what's fueling a toxic video mix linking adults and children. Plus, billionaire power broker Ken Langone may have a new favorite in the 2024 presidential race. Don't go away. Welcome back to Last Call. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan tonight. Meta finds itself in more hot water. A test conducted by the Wall Street Journal revealed Instagram's Reels algorithm creates what the paper describes as a toxic video mix for adults who follow children on the platform. The journal set up multiple test accounts following young gymnasts, cheerleaders, and other young influencers on the platform. In return, the test accounts were shown... Uh, showed risque and and inappropriate content between ads for Bumble, Walmart, Disney, and others. In response, Meta tells CNBC in part, these results are based on a manufactured experience that does not represent what billions of people around the world see every single day when they use our products and services. With us tonight for more is Jim Anderson, CEO of AI software company Beacon and former CEO of Social Flow. Thank you for being here. When you look at the problem of ad placement next to suggestible content, stuff that nobody would ever want their kids to see or have your name publicly identified with, is it a problem for Instagram? It's clearly a problem. The fact that we're talking about it (laughs) makes it a problem right now. And I think there's two issues going uh, side by side here. One is just inappropriate content. You know, anytime you're talking about child endangerment, nobody wants that, right? So that's a moderation question. How do I get that off of my platform? The other is, as you suggested, gymnasts and those kinds of things. There's plenty of legitimate reasons why you might follow gymnasts. There's also some maybe less uh, favorable reasons why you would do it. And in that case, I think their algorithms are working well. Algorithms give you more of what you're interested in and less of what you're not, and they don't make a value judgment about whether that's a good thing. Look, when you were uh, part of Social Flow uh, and you look at the way algorithms work, is there room for improvement the way algorithms place ads? digital ads, and maybe not even just on social media platforms, but overall. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think that's what you're going to see Meta and Facebook and Instagram do right now is how can we tune those algorithms? What's going wrong? What just happened? How do we tune and add more exclusions, more blocks, more brand safety things to try to mitigate this problem? But it's it's a little bit like a game of whack-a-mole. It never goes away. They're just constantly trying to make it better. What would you anticipate to see in terms of advertiser reaction? I mean, when, when Elon Musk took questionable action on X, you saw advertisers fleeing. Will we see that on Instagram as well? I don't think we'll see quite the same level. I mean, everybody's going to pause their ads that was associated with that, which I think is just a very responsible thing to do. Hey, uh, hold on here. I want to make sure our ads are appearing in a brand safe environment. Then Meta is going to come back and say, look, we've taken these steps. We've uh, instituted brand safety audits. We've doubled down on our moderation. And that's quite in contrast to what Elon Musk has done. Well, Elon Musk uh, has filed a lawsuit against Media Matters when they went after him. You know, in this case, you've got a statement to CNBC saying, look, this doesn't replicate what really happens. But again, you know, I have friends who are dance moms and they follow lots and lots of kids And they may also see the same ads that we we saw for Bumble and and Disney and the like. So the problem is not really the placement of ads on dance competition videos. 
but rather who's following those accounts. Yeah, it's really a question of the context, right? And, and that's the, the art of trying to, to have these algorithms serve up the right kind of content that's going to be interesting to you and the right kind of advertising adjacent to that. It's all powered by artificial intelligence, and it's an arms race. Does AI help or hurt? Uh, it net helps, but it's, AI can't run unleashed any more than the algorithms that have powered for social media for years should run unleashed. Jim, thanks. Thank you. Next up, billionaire businessmen may have a new favorite GOP presidential candidate, Nikki Haley. In fresh comments to CNBC, billionaire Home Depot co-founder Ken Langone says Nikki Haley is, quote, the only person I see who can give Donald Trump a run for his money, end quote. He's meeting with her next week and previously supported Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Langone is just the latest to announce he's considering financially backing Haley's campaign, joining Citadel's Ken Griffin, Billionaire investor Stanley Druckenmiller has committed to Haley and J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, who reportedly has been having private conversations with her about policy and the economy. Let's bring in the author behind that CNBC piece, Brian Schwartz. Brian, good to see you. Good to see you, Contessa. What is it about Nikki Haley and her grasp of policies and politics that might be appealing to the likes of these uh, well-known investors who often show up on CNBC daytime TV? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think her views on foreign policy uh, and, and her stance on Israel has been something that's really stood out uh, to wealthier donors. I, I, I can tell you that you know, when I spoke to Ken Langone, uh, you know, he brought up her position on abortion, where she's been saying uh, that, that the states really should be the ones coming down on that issue, not at the federal level. Uh, and, and, and really, Langone represents, as you kind of alluded to, this growing group of wealthier people showing interest and in potentially supporting her campaign. Uh, you know, he, he called me up and we talked about this at length. And he you gave insight uh, to not only the policies, but to the meeting he plans to have with her next week in New York. And she is going to be in New York, by the way, for a fundraiser mm. um, with others who previously supported Tim Scott for president. Is, is it also an element of ABT, anyone but Trump? I mean, you've got Trump out polling all of those who could possibly go up against him. And is this the thought then that perhaps they wrap around and try to coalesce around one candidate who can give Trump a, mon a run for the money in the primaries? Yeah, I think I think that's part of it. But it goes back to, you know, when I was on last call last time, we, we, we kind of touched on this where this has been a year long effort by, frankly, wealthier people to find that alternative to Donald Trump. And at first, many of them thought it was Ron DeSantis and some still do. But now there has been a shift as Tim Scott drops out of the race, Mike Pence dropped out of the race uh, toward Nikki Haley in many cases. And it also coincides with the fact that some donors just see Haley rising and DeSantis not going far enough for them to really be convinced that he's going to be able to compete against Trump come Iowa, come the New Hampshire primary, and of course, come the South Carolina primary, uh, where, you know, Nikki, that's her home state, and that's a key state for her potential path here to victory. But as you said, Donald Trump is up, you know, double digits and nationwide, and both at, at, at that and also at the state level, which is e equally, if not more important than what we're seeing on the national, in the national polls right now. Brian, thank you. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Coming up, the Carolina Panthers are bad. I mean, really bad. We have numbers that may even get their billionaire owner and hedge fund titan, David Tepper, shedding a tear. Next.
Well, Brian would normally give you an RBI. I'm going to do that, but I'm going to raise you and give you an ROI on top of it. Tonight, we're talking about billionaire hedge fund manager David Tepper. He really knows how to get a return on investment on Wall Street. On the football field, at least so far, not good. Tepper is the owner of the NFL's Carolina Panthers. And now he's fired a head coach during the season for a second year in a row. Earlier today, the Panthers parted ways with Frank Reich. Another loss yesterday dropped the team's record to an NFL worst 1-10. and 10. Under Tepper, the Panthers have become the new Browns. Over the past five seasons, Carolina has only won 30 games and failed to make the playoffs. Only the New York Jets have a worse winning percentage during that span. Tepper bought the Panthers for about $2.3 billion in 2018. So somebody did the math. It was not me. I was told there would be no math. But they came up with $76 bucks per win under his tenure. So what? Let's talk about it with sports business analyst Joe Pompliano. He's an investor at Pomp Investments, the host of the Joe Pomp Show podcast. Thank you for joining us on Last Call. Uh, so, so, you know, Tepper's known to a CNBC audience for making contrary investments and being willing to wait for the return to pay off on those investments. Maybe that's just what he's doing here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Contessa. There's a few different ways to look at this, right? It hasn't been good over the last few years with his purchase of the Carolina Panthers, but he actually owns two sports teams in Carolina. He owns the Carolina Panthers of the NFL and Charlotte FC of MLS. And both of those teams, while he hasn't done well on the field or the pitch, firing five coaches over the last four, four seasons and four in the last 18 months, they still get record attendance. Both of them are top 10 in their leagues, respectively, for attendance. And the assets themselves have appreciated. So financially speaking, David Tepper has done uh, exceptionally well. He purchased both those teams for around two and a half, two point six billion dollars billion. And now four or five years later, they're worth about $5 billion combined. So that's about 100% increase over the last four or five years, exceptionally well. Now on the field, it's a completely different story. The Panthers have become one of the worst teams in the NFL. They're one in 10 this season. They also don't have a first round pick because they traded it last year. And they owe $25 million at a minimum to the two coaches that they have fired over over the last two seasons. So this is going to take some time to play out, but things have not started off nearly as well as David Tepper might have expected uh, in the NFL. Does it have an ominous warning signal then for, say, Josh Harris of Apollo Global, who bought the Washington Commanders, which also enjoys a a bad record for the NFL? I mean, the last time I checked, it was, wait, wait, last in the NFL in terms of points per game. That's what I found. Uh, yeah, it, it, is it, it the same thing? Is it, is it an investor mentality that's a problem when you own a football team? There's certainly some nuance to this, right? And it's kind of a case-by-case basis. But historically, what we've seen is that owners that have done exceptionally well and made a bunch of money in other areas of life, right? David Tepper, he's worth $20 billion. He's one of the richest guys in the country today. He's done exceptionally well in other areas of his life. But when they come to the NFL, it's an entirely different ball game. And a lot of the things that made you successful in other parts of your life don't necessarily translate to the NFL. And an example of this would be right at his hedge fund. He gets to make all the decisions. He is the ultimate person in charge of everything. When you go to the the NFL, that structure as an owner doesn't typically work. The best teams hire the best people who have been doing this all of their lives to evaluate the players and coach them and go out and win football games. And what we've seen with David Tepper over the last few years is there's been constant reports of him not having enough patience or meddling in decisions that the GM or the coach should be making. And that's a recipe for disaster, whether it's in the NFL or any other professional sports league. 
Joe, thank you very much. I can just feel the sports gamblers right now taking what you've said and using it to inform the next bets. We'll see you soon. Thanks for having me. Next up, time for our Quicker Than the Ticker, all the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Record-breaking air travel. The TSA screened almost 3 million passengers at airports nationwide yesterday, marking the busiest day ever for the agency. The last daily record was set this past June. The Thanksgiving box office numbers are out, and Disney's wish did not come true. It fell short of expectations, grossing just $31.7 million domestically. The new Hunger Games installment took the top spot, with $42 million in its second week. Speaking of movies, Taylor Swift announced her record-breaking concert film The Eras Tour is coming to streaming. It will be out December 13th on the singer's 34th birthday. The Merriam-Webster word of 2023 is, drumroll please, authentic. America's oldest dictionary said it saw a substantial increase in online searches for the word, in part, they say, because of the rise in artificial intelligence. The White House holiday decorations are up. First Lady Jill Biden says this year's theme is called Magic, Wonder and Joy. 60 seconds goes really fast. (laughs) Coming up, Make It Mondays, we meet the entrepreneur behind one of New York's hottest eateries. And yes, it involves beef patties stuffed with mac and cheese. Be right back. Make it Mondays, our celebration of America's small businesses and entrepreneurs. And tonight, meet Joshua Datt. He's the owner of a New York City deli making staple dishes with a Caribbean twist. The business is on track to bring in a million plus this year and has huge social media following. Take a look. first bite, everybody's so in love. It's something they've never tasted before. It's such a different taste. It doesn't melt the way my mouth. My name is Joshua Datt. I'm 31 years old. I'm the owner of Dat's Deli in New York City. The oxtail patty is a Jamaican beef patty that we cut open, throw some macaroni and cheese inside. I throw some oxtail on top, and I throw some oxtail gravy, wrap it in a cocoa bread, cut it in half, throw some more oxtail gravy on top of it. I opened the store on December 9th, 2022. I saved up 70K altogether for the store. I wanted to build it by myself. I didn't want no handouts. Everyone that works here is family or a very close friend. Every month for ingredients for the store, we probably spend around 15K. So many people looked at me and was like, why are you opening up a deli? There's so many delis. But I knew that my deli was gonna be different. And at first we was only selling three to five Mac patties a day. I just kept promoting it on Instagram. And then an influencer came, he made a video, and ever since then it's just been a wrap. We went from selling four patties to 500 patties a day. This is real sweat, this is not fake. We stood outside for an hour for this. The first month we only made around $8,000. We're predicted to make 1.2 million this year. It's very stressful. Right now it's just keeping up with the demand because the demand is so high. Five oxtail. I want to have a dad's deli in every major city. That's my goal, like, so I want one in Florida. I want one in Texas. It's the money. Don't give up on yourself and keep pushing. No matter how hard it is, no matter how much nose you get, just keep going. And look who joins me in studio, and not just that, 
you brought food with you as well. This is the famous. Yeah, so I brought four oxtail mac patties right there, and then there's two jerk mac patties. What else is on the menu? So we have, on the menu, you could get any of your basic Caribbean dishes. So you could get like roti with curry or rice and curry, but then we have our specialty, and that's our mac patties. And you could put whatever you want on it. So we have goat curry, chicken curry. We could put fried fried shrimp on it, fried fish on it. Whatever you want. You said that table. you said in the story that Instagram or social media was a huge um, factor in your growth. Have you embraced that as as a marketing strategy now that you saw that difference, or is it all organic, just from the people who come through? No, I I make sure I use my Instagram as much as I can because I've seen the power of Instagram when you're doing something good with it, and when you got something different. And I knew if I had something different. I'll get the people coming. You said that most everybody who works in your restaurant is friends or family. Yeah. That creates complications because if it's not going well, it's hard to fire yeah, a friend can't. or family. Yeah, you can't fire your dad. What's <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've tried before and my dad won't <laughs> let me, but, you know, that's a different story. When, when you're operating a small business, have there been big challenges that you did not anticipate, like that? not just with hiring and who you're going to get to come in there, but in just in serving the long lines of people who were standing outside yeah. maybe. At first, you know, I didn't expect um, the big crowds. And then it was just learning how to keep up with it. And we learned how to do that. And once we learned how to do it, everything got easier. I'm going to taste this on okay. camera, but I have more stories to deliver. So stay right here. I'm going to tell you, if you want to hear more stories like Joshua, you can visit CNBCMakeIt.com. Wait for the taste test because I'm the barefaced Contessa or something like that. Here we go. Back in time. Ready? Do you know what happened 10 years ago today? One of the highest grossing animated movies of all time hit the silver screen. Let it go. Let it go. Can't hold you back anymore. Who can forget Let It Go? It's like an earworm that gets in your head and then you're singing it all day long, annoying all of those who sit around. The lawyers told me I'm not allowed to sing on TV, so I'm not going to. The song was translated into 41 languages. It won an Oscar, and it helped make Frozen a box office sensation. The movie raked in more than $1.2 billion at the global box office. Only Frozen 2 and the Super Mario Brothers movie have banked more, but that was the original. All right, Joshua, you, you're not going to make me eat alone, are you? I'll no, go, okay, here we go. Joshua and I are going to try... The, the first time I've ever had a sandwich with macaroni and cheese on it. That's last call tonight. Brian is missing out, but he's back tomorrow. Mm. That's really good. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.